Our guest today, Tabitha Sable, is a self-described hacker and sysadmin who loves teaching adversarial security techniques to engineers. In addition to her day job at Datadog as systems security engineer, she is also a regular public speaker and contributor to Kubernetes. So please stay tuned as we catch up with Tabitha Sable and hear how she built a career in tech. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at Developmentor. Hey, Tabitha, welcome to Developmentor. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Grant, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I trust you are doing well. I think we established uh, before the show that we both have some commonality in Minnesota. I feel like these days, some I've, I've interviewed like maybe five or six people from Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on in Minnesota. You know, the everything is so wild right now. And, you know, I just feel lucky to have been able to get through it mostly unscathed and trying to uh, help out others in whatever ways I can. Yeah, knock on wood on that. I think uh, like being a remote worker has definitely helped me as well, being used to working remote and then also not having to go be in an office. So I, I feel fortunate and, and lucky that way as well. So well, let's let's dive in, Tabitha, and and I would love to have you take just you know a few minutes to introduce yourself and your career journey so far. You know, I mentioned where you currently are at there, but you know, walk me through a little bit of how you got your start in this field and and how that led to where you are now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like the Queen says in Through the Looking Glass. No, actually, I believe it was the King. We'll begin at the beginning, proceed until we reach <laughs> the end, and then stop. You know, for me, this whole kind of journey really began when I was a teenager. When I was in high school, there was like a computer club at, at school, and there were a bunch of old surplus Unix workstations and things like that. So this was in the, this was in the very late 90s, and we had a lot of really outdated gear. And that was a good opportunity to learn just by playing with things and talking to people. So around that, around the same time in my life there, when I was a teenager, I got my first experience of running a server with users and providing a service to people because I had a machine and installed OpenBSD on it so that everybody could log in and play Rogue and play Adventure together. Also around that same time was on some uh, various hacker bulletin boards like the Loft BBS and uh, things like that. And really was applying a lot of my curiosity to these kinds of areas. And so after high school, I you know, moved, moved away from my parents and just sort of forgot about tech, at least professionally speaking. I went and uh, worked in a hospital for numerous years in the department that makes uh, surgical instrument 
kits for for doing surgery, you know, sterilizing the scissors and the retractors and things like that. But I had picked up that bug of wanting to provide a service, wanting to provide something that uh, that people could use and that that you know solved a problem or or helped somebody have a good time. And so you know during during that time i was doing some tech stuff on my own you know running a a web server hosted off of my dsl in the house and and things like that but not really thinking about it as a professional matter and then life circumstances being the way they are um i moved to another city and wasn't able to get a job in that field. Like I had a certification to do um, the preparation of the of the surgical instruments and all that, but um, moved to a different city and wasn't able to wasn't able to get a job in that. And so just kind of had to look around and and see what I could do, and uh, picked up a job providing technical support at a company that put Wi-Fi networks in hotels and then had a call center that people who were having trouble getting connected could get onto. And so I got into that on the the strength of my hobby projects and whatever. From there, worked my way up into doing um, network engineering, designing networks to put into hotels, and eventually took over the development and maintenance of the embedded Linux router products that they had. And so at that time, I was still just thinking very much in a head down, work on the computers kind of technical role. After that, I moved into uh, the uh, IT department at a software company and started to deal more with bigger like business-related concerns from uh, pivoting from more of an operations kind of role into running security projects like managing a vulnerability scanning and reporting vulnerability management system, SIM, so um, security uh, event logging and analysis, that that kind of thing. From that involvement, I uh, started to want to do more things with interacting more with people in different parts of the business and then grew that into seeing difficulties industry-wide and wanting to be able to do something to to help people out and encourage people and wasn't really able to do as much community kind of work as I wanted to there because my my employer at that time was very shy and so you know, eventually got into the Kubernetes community by, uh, you know, applying the Linux and security experience that I had had in the past and, you know, moved into the, to the role that I have now at Datadog, where there is a lot more support for community engagement and uh, trying to improve things in an industry-wide kind of way kind of a long journey that I guess you can characterize by saying that I never chose one. Like, I I never stopped thinking of security and operations as being linked together very intimately. And I think that's unusual. You know, generally, I think people are given very strong advice that they need to pick one of those camps and really 
really get into it, but most of my success in my career has come from the fact that I have really kept a foot in both worlds, so to speak. Hmm. Both worlds being like security and, and then also kind of like how does the operations administration of of the technology serve the business? Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Because there's yeah. this there's this problem in the industry where security and operations teams often accidentally work at cross purposes, but hmm. fundamentally they're both doing the same thing. They're trying to keep whatever the service is going so that people can use it to achieve their goals and they want to keep it going in a way that is functional and reliable and safe and so you know having having both of those points of view has really helped to help those groups remain in harmony yeah that's fantastic practically speaking you know security is one of those areas that often requires a pretty deep understanding across the whole stack, if you will, because, right, there's vul vulnerabilities up and down, you know, every, the, the whole entire stack. And like, in the interactions between layers, yeah. Exactly. And and how did you go about educating yourself on this? Because what I'm gathering, too, here is you're self-taught on this. You know, you took this interest from a teenager and then, you know, you kind of developed it. You know, like I'm, I'm curious, how did you actually go about acquiring your your security skills? Mm, I guess is yeah, a better, yeah, better that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, so, like, my educational background, um, you know, I, I eventually went to university and, and got a bachelor's degree in math after coming out of physics, like, like quantum mechanics kind of physics. You know, over the course of that, took enough English courses that I probably could have gotten the minor just by filling out the paperwork, but it didn't occur to me at the time to do so. You know, I did take one one computer class when I was in college. Um, I took Fortran for scientists, which was which was it was fun and interesting, but the kind of approach that got me through the the math and physics education is the same approach that got me up to speed and and helps me to keep up with what's going on in security and and that's just that I'm very I'm very curious about what's going on inside of things what is the model of whatever the situation is how do we conceptualize it versus what really happens and what are the interesting things about that discrepancy? I think a good illustration of this is in the popularity of lock sport, like lock picking as a as a hobby among people in infosec, um, you know, hackers and and the like. Where I think that it's explained by the fact that, in a very abstract conceptual sense, is very similar to computer security, where like if a lock were perfect, it would not be possible to pick it. But because locks are real physical objects with tolerances, you can take advantage of the difference between the idealized lock that exists in the design and the real lock that exists in your hand. And you can use those differences you know, to open it without having the key by manipulating mm -hmm. it in unexpected ways. And, you know, that's to me feels very similar to the way that uh, 
experimental research happens in fundamental physics, very similar to the way that research happens in mathematics, and you know, similar to how you learn about and, and hack things in computer security. This realization about yourself, is this kind of something you always realized, uh, even as a kid, like, you know, if you think back, or, or was this emergent as you, you know, like, say, in your 20s, or while you're in college? You know, I was very, I was very lucky to get a lot of support for that going way back to childhood. My, uh, my mom was a mechanic, my dad was a race car driver. And uh, there was a time when I was very small, probably, you know, three or four years old, where uh, we were all at the garage, you know, mom and dad had pulled the motor out of the out of the race car. And uh, my dad picked me up and uh, put me in the engine bay of the of the stock car, you know, where the motor should have been, and uh, told me don't get yourself in trouble. When I was a very, very small child, I was always taking everything apart. And uh, generally trying to put it back together too. And so, you know, when I was eight or nine years old, I was given a uh, non-functional engine that had been taken out of the car of a family friend and, you know, some, some tools, some ratchets and wrenches and things to, to take it apart with. And so in one sense, that isn't at all tech, but in this, in this very abstract sense of just really being very interested in what's going on inside things, it's really how, you know how I got my start. Yeah, I love it. That's that's so cool, and I I, I I totally can see that. And I also could appreciate your dad's just like, hey, you know, don't get yourself in trouble. <laughs> I've I've confined you to a space. But where did the security part come forward, though? You know, I I hear math and physics. I hear the taking apart things. I, I you know a lot of that speaks to engineering in general. I think many of us in engineering, you know, like a lot of those things. And, you know, you mentioned perhaps it's this, you know, you you specifically were opening up your computer, you know, to play games with, with strangers from the, the early days of the internet. But, like, where did the actual security part come forward as opposed to, you know, any of the other other aspects that you could do as as a programmer that's a that that's a really good question and i think for me it was kind of the first part like you've got a computer it's got documentation it lists out all the things you can do but but there's a lot more that you can do that's not in the documentation and so, you know, some some of the early experiences that I had with like seeing game cracks and, you know, starting to learn a little bit of assembly language so that you can open up like a game in a in a disassembler and try to find the last jump where it's going to jump to the exit condition of, you know, you're not licensed. And like, can we knop that jump out so that the game starts up and runs? Things, things like that. I think that my curiosity was really sparked by this idea of using machines, using like these artifacts of human ingenuity in a way that was different than the intention. The silly way to say this is, it's just fun to break things. 
but <laughs> but in a very specific way like like to me it it was more fun as a child to to take things apart and see what was inside them than it was to smash them open with a hammer mm. And that's that putting it back together because you still valued the thing that you, you know, the object itself, you know, so you, you still wanted that. And that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I did an after school program with uh, a local grade school that was Take Apart Club. And they had they had done it a couple of times before. And the parent that had previously run it wasn't able to do so anymore. And so the, the staff sent me an email and were like, would you would you be interested in doing this? And I said, oh, my goodness. Yeah, of course. And uh, and so we would have parents bring in junk um, and when we started running low on junk that parents could bring in, I reached out to some of my contacts, like in the electronics recycling center, be like, hey, can we get some junk for these for these kids to take apart? And, you know, they had screwdrivers and safety glasses and, and whatever. And seeing the way that showing them that they could take things apart, showing them that they could think about what was inside seeing the way that that changed their outlook on the things in the world that something that's all wrapped up and and you know beautiful neatly ready to use and says don't open this because it's none of your business what's inside like seeing that they could think about what's inside and could even open it up and look at what's inside it was just such a joy to be able to share that experience with them and also really inspiring to see the excitement that, you know, that a kid would have because there's no directions. You've got to figure it out. And I really tried to encourage them to, to take things apart in, in less destructive ways. But it was also really fun to be able to show them a grown-up who didn't know what she was doing but that was going to try to figure it out together with them. And so, like, for example, we had a, a phone handset one time. And so, you know, I would always teach them, look all around the outside, see if you can find any screws. If you can't find screws, feel under little parts that might be able to come off because screws are often hidden in there. And if you can't find any screws, then then look for the seams, you know, look for the look for the places where you can get an in and, you know, try and start gently prying there at those seams. And so one time we had this phone handset and, uh, you know, this little girl, she searched and searched and she couldn't find any screws on the thing. And she's like, uh, like, Tabitha, please help me. I was like, I, I, I can't find anything either. We're going to have to try to pry it open. We tried gently to pry it open. We couldn't pry it open either. And, you know, we, we worked on that for maybe five, 10 minutes. And, and finally I was like, you know, we've really tried our best. If we want to know what's inside here, I don't think we have any choice but to break it. And so, you know, we we carefully drove a screwdriver through the seam between two plastic halves of the shell of this thing and, and pried it open by force. And uh, once we got it open, we were able to inspect it a little more closely and see that the whole thing was assembled with epoxy. There was no way to disassemble it non-destructively. But until mm. we tried, we couldn't have known. And, mm. and like the look on her face in that moment when she realized that we had tried everything else and, and this was our last option. And then 
seeing that we really we really had we 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 hadn't failed we hadn't overlooked anything it just was that kind of job it was so lovely and and i think that's really closely related to the practice of of computer security like you know you're you're conceptually looking at something from every angle looking for the seams looking for looking for the imperfections and trying to jam a screwdriver into them yeah, that's such a good segue to my one of my questions, which is, you know, in your mind, what are some of the key skills? You know, so this figure outedness, which I love, is is one of them. But you know, like if if I'm somebody who wants to get into security, what what practical skills, what per, interpersonal skills, what are the what's the skill set that goes into being successful in security? I think that uh, that curiosity and like a self-motivated need to learn more is a really powerful thing in getting into security. And then if somebody is coming from some other area with some other kind of technical background, um, the, the thing about security is that uh, there's no one person or team that can make a computer or a system or a product or a network secure. But almost anybody who uses it or works on it can do things to make it insecure. And so, you know, to try to make something secure requires a team effort. That kind of curiosity and wanting to really understand how something works, like understanding how it's supposed to work, but also how it actually works, can be applied to almost any technical domain. And so people who have some sort of technical experience and want to get into security, often the most direct route is to start to get really detailedly curious about the thing that you already know about. Get the fundamentals in a really serious way and then try to apply this kind of adversarial problem-solving mindset to it. As far as social skills, I think that that's an area where we really struggle as like the information security industry. I think that that's a real area for improvement for us with improving our social skills generally as an industry of seeing security people as helpers, teammates, to the folks who are running systems, to the folks who are, who are programming systems. And so, you know, the ability to understand somebody else's concerns and to try to understand why they're making the decisions that they are and to empathize with the decision-making that, that they have done when you need to ask someone to do something differently is, is also super important for succeeding insecurity because the best technical solutions don't matter if they don't get implemented because of being presented the wrong way or in an impractical way. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I know in my, my, in my current place, we, we often talk about similar things about how, how do we shift security left, right? Like it's, it's often, in a lot of places, a gatekeeping role at the end of the equation. And, you know, how do you bring it earlier in? So it's more consultative. It's more about risk management and informing and trade-offs and, 
Yeah, uh, it's a and, lot easier to get those concerns in at the beginning than it is yeah. to try to rush them into place at the end. And and at the beginning, it's usually easier to get started on having a positive relationship to say what you're working on is hard, we'd like to help you, than at the end to scream, oh, no, don't do it that way. Well, where were you when we decided to do it that way? <laughs> <laughs> right. Coming back to you, Tabitha, you know, you, you gave a great overview of kind of your journey at the high level of the, the what, as I like to say. Share with me one or two inflection points along that journey that really, I don't know, get at the heart of how you've figured out how to navigate, or if you have, not that we've all figured out, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, to the extent how, how, how to, to which navigate. I have anyway, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like how, how, to the extent of which you've figured out how to navigate a career in tech. Like, you yeah, know, what, yeah, I would say there was really two for me, um, and that's kind of why I started way at the beginning of that story, where the first was this realization that, the things that I had been doing for fun were a meaningful educational experience that I actually could apply in a professional capacity. You know, I had been very involved in a lot of, of hobbyist tech things, but had never, like, had, had gatekeeped myself, really, you know, had, had thought of myself as not being qualified to do any like professional work in tech because I didn't have, you know, I had a, I had a math degree for a long time. I didn't have a degree at all. Um, and then when I did have a degree, I had a math degree. And so, you know, I would see, you know, job listings that, that wanted a computer science degree or whatever. And, and, and I gatekeeped myself out of them. So then that situation where I just kind of had to look around and find a job and, you know, this, this tech customer service, kind of opening was there and and seemed like a, a thing that I could apply for. That was important. Like learning that skills are skills and not to gatekeep myself mm. was was a really important inflection point. And then much more recently, when I started doing public speaking and getting involved in upstream communities, realizing that that I could pick my head up and, and look around and that I could take my career seriously as opposed to just taking my job seriously. You know, I've always taken my job very seriously. Um, you know, even when I was like painting the curbs white at the gas station when I was a teenager, you know, I was, I was diligent about that. But thinking in a longer time horizon was really an inflection point for me as well um, to see that that I could talk to others, that I could help people, you know, that I could that I could give people advice, and and I didn't just have to learn from people that I admired, but that we're all struggling together and we can all support each other. That that it's not as as hierarchical as I had believed things to be, um, you know that that there isn't a strict ladder, and I wasn't trapped at the bottom of it. That I could that I could talk to people and uh, and tell them what I thought, and that that could be helpful to others was was a big uh, 
was a big inflection point for me as well. If I could jump in there, was was there a particular moment or something like you know the what you're describing sounds like a light bulb going off moment? I'm I'm curious if you could dive in a little bit more. Yeah, there. Um, it was a little more gradual than like a light bulb going off. But at the end of 2019, I had a I had a really busy speaking career. You know, I I did a a talk a month for for four months there. This was all totally separate from my job at the time. So so I took vacation to go to Lisa and present at Lisa. I took vacation to go to KubeCon and present at KubeCon. And uh, actually, I had to rearrange a bunch of things in order to come out exactly at zero at the end of the year, because the the initial way that I had put in those vacations to to give those presentations, I ended up negative and that wouldn't have worked. If there was a light bulb moment, it was the moment when I realized that I was burning all of my vacation in order to have, like in order to go and, and present mm-hmm. at conferences and talk to people and learn from people, that that didn't have to be that way. And, and that, uh, that that was valuable, that that going and, and talking to people and encouraging people and learning from people was valuable and, and that I needed to look for better support for that. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that, that's so interesting. Well, there's an inception point, if you will, before that, which is what was the catalyst for you even wanting to do public speaking? You know, I mean, you know, they often list that as, uh, you know, one of the great fears in life, right, is public speaking, and yet <laughs> you're off doing it. What what sparked that for you? Actually, a conversation with some friends at, uh, at DEF CON a couple of years ago, someone who was not yet my friend at the time tweeted that they were at DEF CON and they wanted to, uh, they wanted to CTF with some people who weren't all boys. And so I was like, hey, can, can I come? And they were like, yeah, yeah, please come. And so a bunch of us showed up and uh, we had a table in the CTF room and had this like buzzing hive of supportive activity that was a completely different vibe than the rest of the room with like all these scowling boys behind their laptops very seriously competing with each other. And we attracted a really great and diverse group of people like we had some some very seriously experienced pen testers who who could just fly through a lot of the ctf challenges um and we had a bunch of people that didn't know what ssh was and like didn't know anything about how to like log into a linux server and we had a a a broad spectrum of different uh, experience levels in between and we had a really good time, and we did pretty well, too, especially considering that our explicitly stated goal was to have fun. But mm-hmm. during the course of that weekend, you know, I spent a lot of time teaching skills to people who were beginners after explaining you know, SSH and like the history of, uh, of how you would log into a Unix system, you know, starting from a paper teletype and then to like a, a glass terminal, like a VT100 and then a terminal emulator and the movement from a serial connection to like RSH or Telnet and then to SSH. Um, 
none of which is strictly necessary to know how to SSH into a server, but I think is really important for understanding it conceptually, like why, why you do it, why it looks like it does, why it behaves like it does. After after explaining that to a few people several times, a very good friend of mine said, you know, have have you considered just, you know, giving that as a presentation? And I said, well, no, of course not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but but the more that I thought about it, it it seemed like a good idea. Um, and, you know, to be completely frank, it's an excuse to travel and it's a it can be a way to get somebody else to support your travel. And so like the first public speaking CFP that I ever put in was to Bang Bang Con West in uh, Santa Cruz because it was an opportunity to tell a fun story that that I really liked and that people had enjoyed hearing and to meet people and to touch a redwood tree. So like, you know, the the encouragement that I got from my friends and then sort of the the mechanical logistical encouragement that comes from a conference that has travel support for speakers. Um, the combination of those two things was an absolutely huge opportunity for me and and changed yeah. a lot about my life and and how I look at things. Yeah, and just for our listeners, their travel support for conferences for speakers is it used to be more common. It's much less common these days. But yeah, no, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's very and, rare. Yeah, real quick, Tabitha, I think you one acronym you mentioned in there, CTF. Oh yeah, yeah, capture the flag contest. So this idea of essentially like a computer hacking contest or or a computer puzzle solving contest, really. Um, a very common format for this is called Jeopardy style format, where you log into some sort of scoreboard system and it lists out challenges. And the challenges might be, here is like a crypto quote, solve it. The challenges might be hack into this server and retrieve the secret value. Um, you know, the challenges might be, here is a binary, like a Windows program that prompts you for a, a password figure out what the password is, you know, a whole range of, of possible kinds of kinds of challenges. And you try to solve them for for fun and encouragement and, uh, you know, the glory of, of saying that you won or the glory <laughs> of saying that you did your best and, and made friends. Uh, that's fantastic. I've never been to DEF CON, for instance, but I, I've heard stories of, you know, some of these kinds of things are quite legendary there as as I understand it, you know, people hacking the hotel security and all of that kind of stuff too. So just because they, they, it's part of the, part of the game as it were. Yeah. De DEF CON is almost like a, like a whole temporary city, like visiting any other city. You're much more likely to have a good time if you go to it with a plan, especially if you can go to it with friends. But if you can't go to it with friends, if you can go to it with a plan for how to make friends, you know, it's it's far too large to experience all of. But that does mean that there are many different ways to have a really good time. And uh, and you you got to pick out something that that you think is going to be going to be fun and educational for yourself. Yeah. 
And I, and I love the, you know, you tied together so many cool things here about, you know, this, these inflection points around how you're, how you've grown in your career and started actually thinking about your career as opposed to just having the job. Um, that was a big a, change for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know I had that epiphany too. I think in, I don't know, I was in early thirties where it's like, you know what, Grant, no one else is going to do it for you. It's probably time you do it. <laughs> You know, so kind of hard for me at first because I was doing really well, just worrying about my job. Like I was lucky enough to yeah. be to be having fun. I I enjoyed the the systems administration work that I was doing. Um, you know, I enjoyed the the security work that I was doing, and you know, for for a long time, it it just honestly it didn't even occur to me to to need to think ahead any more than that. But then, you know, when I, when I started wanting to be able to talk to people more, that was the catalyst for me of, of realizing that if I wanted to be able to talk to people more, I needed to be able to get out more and I needed to think about my career. Yeah. So very lucky for that. It rings so true for me as well. And similar, similar kinds of things of like, you know, just like you gotta, if you want these things, your current approach isn't working. Right. I mean, it's not bad. It, you know, you're probably well paid in that kind of role. But if that's not what you want, then you've got to you've got to make the change. What is the best thing about your role and what's the most challenging? You know, my like professionally, my current role is very cross functional. Um I I work to tie together the offensive and defensive security teams, the product teams around security, the operations teams, and you know governance, risk, and compliance, and and try to broker a sustainable mutual growth for for all of those teams. And and being able to talk to so many different people with different concerns, but a mutual interest is is the part that I enjoy the most. And honestly, time management is the most challenging part of it because there's always more great things and great improvements that could be done or made than there is time in life to do them. And prioritization is fun and easy when it's picking the thing that is the most important. But for me, it's much more challenging when you get to the drawing the line and saying, this is a good idea, but we're not doing it right now anyway, part. Um, And so... So yeah, I I absolutely love being able to bring people together using the joy of breaking into computers as as like the nucleus for that relationship mm. building. The fact that it's limitless is a blessing and a curse. <laughs> I, I can imagine. What has I, I know you and I mentioned in the the lead in Tabitha that you do a, a fair amount of work with Kubernetes, and you know we've had prior guests on talking about Kubernetes, so I don't think we need to go into what is exactly Kubernetes. But let me ask you a little bit different question, which is, what has working on Kubernetes and working on open source meant for you and your career? 
Oh, working on open source and Kubernetes especially has been has been wonderful for my network building. Um, I feel like it can seem really mercenary to say, build your professional network, especially to people from an engineering or a like hacking background. But to me, when I say that, I really mean learn who else is doing cool things. Learn of those people who has the kind of attitude that you want to spend more time around and then talk to those people. And so, you know, working in, in open source generally has been, has been pretty good for that because there are a lot of, there are a lot of good people in a lot of open source communities, but Kubernetes has the most wonderful focus on building a positive, inclusive community on purpose. And not only is that effective, but it also attracts a certain kind of people. And those are the kind of people that I want to be around. And so, like, the technology is fun. I, I like the way that it can enable new, you know, new ways of, of doing business. I like the way that it can enable the use of cool new Linux hardening features that have been hard to use otherwise. But the, like the, the social and community building aspect of it is, is totally wonderful. Like that's yeah. <laughs> to to me, that's the bigger deal part of Kubernetes than the technical part of it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've I've been hearing this a lot lately as well. As somebody who's kind of on the periphery of Kubernetes, uh, you know, we use it in production at work at, at on for Wikipedia and the like. But um, you know, I've and I've toyed with you know Minikube and all that kind of stuff. But I've I consistently hear people rave about the community especially for me like somebody who like there's a lot of open source projects that have a lot of toxicity in them as well and, mm -hmm. and i think kubernetes is doing some really interesting things tell me a little bit more about like how does this come forward and practice at kubernetes like what what are you all doing practically that maybe our listeners might take home to their own projects goodness being intentional about Inclusion, I think, is the biggest one. You know, within Kubernetes, there's there's a big focus on making the community be a thing that people want to come and participate in and that is welcoming to new contributors and that is respectful. Like, honestly, just being serious about that is is a big change compared to a lot of a lot of other communities that may have developed a positive or may have developed a negative culture by accident but the fact that the the Kubernetes community is built intentionally like is built thoughtfully mm -hmm. when when policies are being made the question of how is this going to encourage people to treat each other is an important consideration. The Kubernetes code of conduct is really thoughtful and also well enforced. You know, it's one thing to have a code of conduct. It's another thing to have one that is 
that is useful. And it's another thing still to actually stick to it. And so, like, fundamentally, I think just treating inclusion and community building as first-rate concerns in your open source project is the thing that is most striking to me about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, it's refreshing to hear because I, I think, you know, we all see some of the toxicity in tech, uh, you know, over mm-hmm. years and, and it's it's so good to hear. And like I said, I've seen uh, and seen and heard it. So that's fantastic. It sounds like a, a great place for beginners, perhaps listening to this show as a as a as a good place to get started uh, in terms of figuring out how to navigate technology as well, you know, and I think in talking with someone, some other folks I know too, is like one of the things that was really cool to me is it seems like along this line of inclusion, like many projects are just all about the code, but Kubernetes actually goes, I shouldn't say out of its way. It builds the way for like other contributors to participate. Yeah, and I I think that there's an aspect of of serendipity there. I was talking to someone recently about how the Kubernetes technology stack does not lend itself well to a clean separation of concerns. You know, the, the layers all kind of blur together. And I said... That's true, and and there are challenges there, but let's think about that as a feature rather than a bug. Let's draw these lines like between support teams, but let's explicitly acknowledge that they're artificial, that they're there to help make it easier to decide who is likely to know about a particular problem, who's likely to be able to help solve a particular problem, but that we explicitly need to be learning at least a little bit about what's going on in the other groups. And I think that that aspect of the technology stack influences those aspects of the community that that in, in some way, like Conway's law cuts both ways there, that like mm-hmm. Kubernetes came out of folks who were already thinking a lot about DevOps, where DevOps is more a set of cultural practices than any particular technical tools. And so like that, that emphasis on, on human relationships and on, on helping each other out that comes from DevOps influences the design of Kubernetes, but then also the design of Kubernetes then influences what the structure of the community needs to look like to continue to build and support Kubernetes. And, and so in, in those ways, it's, it's like a, it's like a virtual, it's like a virtuous feedback loop of encouraging people to talk to each other and, and lift each other up. There's not even much I can add to that. That just sounds fantastic. I love it. I'd encourage our listeners to dig in there more. Yeah, there's, you know, the, the, the Kubernetes community can be intimidating because it's so large and because the Kubernetes software stack is, is very large and complex. And so um, 
you know, mm. we really try to make space for new folks and, and we're always trying to get better at that. Um, and so like, I would say the Kubernetes Slack is a wonderful place to come. Um, you know, you can come with, with simple questions and, you know, get answers from people that you might be afraid to talk to in real life because they're so fancy, but like fancy people are our people and, and we, <laughs> we like to talk to people. And so like, you know, you can, you can come and, and, and get involved and a lot of the Kubernetes SIGs, the special interest groups that make up Kubernetes and have responsibility for different parts of the software, they have meetings, they have listservs, they have issue boards, and a lot of them do triage of issues and flag certain issues as like, this would be a really good place for somebody new to start. And even the ones that don't do that explicitly I know would be very happy for someone who had some skills and was looking to improve them to come and say, hey, I think that the thing that you're doing is interesting. I'm a beginner. Is there is there some way that I can help? Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, for our listeners, link up some of these uh, pointers in, in the show notes. Tabitha, coming back to you, how do you think your role will change in the coming years? What's that kind of the forefront of security these days? You know, I, I think that making security operational and and getting away from this idea of uh, of security as a gatekeeper at the end that says no, but instead security as a specialization within different roles that is embedded in design, in development, in operations. Um, I, I see that being the future and exactly how to get there from where we are now is, is not quite clear. Um, you know, a, a lot of people are saying shift left in the development cycle, and I'm and I'm glad to hear how broad of uptake those ideas have now, because I I think that that is where we have to go in order to be able to continue to keep systems running in a way that is safe as they get more and more complex. So I think that the the cross team kind of communication aspects of it are only going to get larger and figuring out exactly how to do those sorts of of role splits of of building really deep expertise in certain security related technical areas like um you know you know, software bug hunting, um, writing exploits, reverse mm -hmm. engineering, while also having those experts able to share their expertise with a larger team that has similar concerns but doesn't have time to develop that deep expertise, I think is is the interesting challenge for the future. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I, I think pretty spot on from my view of how we talk about security as well. So I think 
that that resonates a lot with me. Last two I don't have those answers, you. but I'm one small person <laughs> trying to help us get closer to them. Yeah, I love it. I love it. it, it so many hard problems in this space and and the the attacks are all getting more and more sophisticated too, of course, and coordinated across larger uh, groups of people, et cetera. So last two questions for you, Tabitha. Put on your mentoring hat for a moment. You know, you reflected some on some of your inflection points. What's your best career advice? What do you wish, you know, I don't know, 18-year-old Tabitha knew about building a career? I mean, it's a little, it's a little silly to say, but I would say the first thing is that it's possible. I think that for people from a certain background, it's easy to think that the only way to be you know, career-minded or to, to be ambitious is to have the ambition to be powerful, the ambition to manipulate people and, and have power over people. And that's not the case. Like, that is an unfortunate failure case that happens frequently, but mm. but it's possible to it's possible to come at career development from a point of view of wanting to get better and help other people and that that's okay so you know not everybody needs to hear that message but for the people who do need to hear that message i think it's a really critical message to get because you know, if the only examples that you've seen of people who are trying to to get ahead are people who are hurting others to do so, you know, that can make just the idea of trying to do well for yourself seem unsavory. Um, and so, mm. you know, for for those particular people who haven't seen someone who is able to succeed through being respectable like just just being able yeah. to see that i think is is a big one and um the other thing that i would say is that it's going to be bad and hard frequently but that it doesn't always have to be and so you know luck luck enters into it a lot more than I think a lot of people who have been successful often want to admit. You got to do your best, and and sometimes doing your best isn't actually going to be enough because because you also have to have the luck there and have the right opportunities. But you know, people people push hard in in those areas, and uh, you know hopefully eventually find the right opportunities and and are able to to make the advances that they want to. Yeah, that's fantastic. Tabitha, so amazing to have you on the show. A lot of uh, a lot of really nice insights here and uh, both what it's like to be in security roles as as well as to have some of those epiphany moments if you will. Last question for you, where can our listeners best learn more from you? I mean, learn more from me. I feel like I'm constantly trying to learn more from the world and from the people around me. So I spend a fair amount of time on Twitter. And so if if people if people have nice things to say to me or or if people want to see what I have to say, they can uh, go to twitter.com slash Tabby Sable and uh, 
you know, I, I, I share some things there and, um, you know, other, other than that, I try to get out and give presentations. Um, I, uh, I have a playlist on YouTube of publicly available recordings and, you know, that's, that's linked out of my Twitter bio. Other than that, I suppose you can find me in, you know, the open source community. Like there's, there's so many good ways to get to know people and, uh, get to work on fun things with others by getting involved in upstream, like writing documentation, writing software, even just providing user feedback is super, is super handy and can also, you know, lead to meeting people and uh, having opportunities that way. That's fantastic. And for our listeners, as always, we will link up Tabitha's uh, Twitter handle as well as some of her talks in the show notes, especially if you want to try out Capture the Flag or you want to dig in on some of these Kubernetes security questions. Uh, She's got a lot of great talks out there that you can engage with her content on. Tabitha, thank you again so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Thanks for having me. It's been been a lot of fun and, uh, and a lot to think about. So... Have have a good one. Thanks a lot. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback, or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com slash support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.